You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Amna Nawaz of the PBS NewsHour, in for Jen White. Let's get into the news roundup. Well, the 2022 midterms are officially over. Reverend Raphael Warnock triumphed in Georgia's Senate runoff, beating Republican candidate Herschel Walker. I want to say thank you to my mother, who is here tonight. You'll see her in a little while. But she grew up in the 1950s in Waycross, Georgia, picking somebody else's cotton and somebody else's tobacco. But tonight she helped pick her youngest son to be a United States senator. That means Democrats have gained a Senate seat. But Arizona's Kirsten Sinema has thrown the party a curveball yet again. We'll get into all of that. Plus, the House passes a bill to protect same-sex marriage. It heads to the president's desk, but what does it really do? And the Trump Organization is found guilty in New York. But what does that really mean for the former president? Let's start now with Georgia. Reverend Raphael Warnock took the state Senate seat with 51 percent of the vote. Joining us is Anita Kumar. She's the senior editor of Standards and Ethics of Politico. Also with us, Steve Clemens. He's an editor-at-large for Semaphore. And Mario Parker, national politics editor at Bloomberg News. Thank you all for joining us. So let's kick it off with Georgia now. Anita, when you look at that Georgia Senate runoff race, what is your biggest takeaway? Well, I'm going to do what we, we've been doing so much lately and focus on Donald Trump. Of course, uh, Herschel Walker, the Republican, was Donald Trump's handpick uh, choice candidate. And we saw that the president, the former president, has really had a terrible year in terms of uh, those that he, um, you know, he endorsed in, in not just Georgia, but Senate and uh, gubernatorial candidates and Nevada, Arizona, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire. He did not have a good year, and this does not set him up well for his own presidential run. There's a lot of other takes that you can look at in Georgia. The state's changing. There, you know, we can look at Herschel Walker being not the best candidate. He had a lot of baggage, um, but really just focusing on Donald Trump right now. Steve, what about you? When you look at this race, what stands out to you? It's the takeaway for me is that Herschel Walker got you know, over 1.7 million votes. Um, you know, the the race was tight, and I agree with Anita that that there were a lot of problems and flaws in the in the in the candidate. In fact, you know, the the candidate Herschel Walker's son, uh, Christian Walker, tweeted out quite graphically and flamboyantly the problems uh, in his father, the candidate. Um, but I think there's another dimension here that you had still had in Georgia a tight race, an extremely close race. Uh, 48.5% of Georgia went for Herschel Walker, and I think that has to be part of the plate. And I think that creates, you know, whether or not it's, it, it creates, I mean, you have to look at a case where, you know, Stacey Abrams lost the state, Brian Kemp won the governorship, uh, Raphael Warnock won the Senate, Herschel Walker lost. It's a, it's, a, it's a state where it's still a jump ball state on a lot of fronts. Um, and so I, I do think Trump is a factor, but I think we have to be careful of thinking that with that many people behind a, a candidate like Walker, that Trump is completely out of the picture. Mario, what stands out to you? I mean, we should point out there was massive turnout for the runoff election here. What does this tell you about how Georgians were viewing these contests? 
No, absolutely. I was down on the ground there earlier this week for the race. And I mean, to to Steve and Anita's point, uh, Georgia, this election has solidified its place as a purple state, as a battleground state. But one of the things that's notable is that you see some of the vestiges of the civil rights movement there. And the Democrats have built a machine. Uh, Stacey Abrams, though she lost her her rematch against Kemp, kind of reinvigorated a machine down there in the South in order to get uh, a lot of turnout from black voters, but also a diverse electorate as well. And so when in speaking to some of those organizers down there, uh, the, 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 the win uh, for them emboldens them to kind of look and, and, and try to replicate that in places like North Carolina, for example. Well, let's talk a little bit about what's ahead then. Anita, when you brought in this out, uh, we should know that, you know, the, the Warnock win there does not change the balance of power in the Senate necessarily, but it does change the 2024 Senate map a bit. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, Democrats are going to have a tough time in 2024. The map is sort of not on their side, if you will. And so this is one more that they wanted. They wanted to secure this to just try to try to even things out a little bit. But they're really going to have a tough road. And of course, you alluded to their their new problem that they have, which of course is Kirsten Cinema saying that she's going to become an independent. And so we don't know if she's going to run, but what they're doing is looking ahead to, uh, you know, for in two years and kind of looking around the country and saying that they're going to have a tough road to try to keep this really, really slim majority. So let's turn to cinema then. Dems have gained that seat in Georgia. But as we just mentioned, Senator Kirsten Cinema of Arizona now plans to switch her party affiliation to independent. Last night, CNN's Jake Tapper asked her what effect that might have on the Democratic caucus. Here's what she said. That's kind of a D.C. thing to worry about. What I'm really focused on is just making sure that I'm doing what I think comports with my values and the values of Arizonans. And I'm not really spending much time worrying about what the mechanics look like for Washington, D.C. And to be honest, Jake, I don't think anyone in Arizona is caring about that either. Steve, when you look at what we know so far about what Cinema has said, how she's answered some of these questions, what do we know about why she made the switch? Well, look, Cinema's in trouble with Democrats in her state. Um, you know, in, in the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, while she did uh, get behind some environmental provisions, she, you know, also basically sided with the wealthiest end to, you know, prevent some of what uh, Senator Manchin was trying to do and getting a, you know, 15% corporate tax and getting, you know, the the extension of a, a carried interest loophole uh, for the most ultra rich out there that that manage other people's funds. And she she um, supported that. So she's in trouble in her state in Ruben Gallego, a congressman from Arizona, um, looks like a potential contender against her running against the primary. So she made potentially a very smart move because she takes herself out of the Democratic primary that if Ruben Gallego were to run, he would most likely win. But it creates a problem for progressives and those on the center left in Arizona because if she were to run as an independent and Ruben Gallego were to win the Democratic primary in Arizona, it, it, it creates very good conditions for who would run on the Republican side. So um, I think that she's, you know, in my view, politically, the D.C. thing, you know, to, to respond to her uh, is I think she knows she's in trouble with Democrats and she's trying to, um, to, to give herself some more options. Mario, how do you look at this? What does all of this mean for Democrats, for the caucus and for President Biden and his agenda? 
Well, it means that uh, after a, a really uh, over uh, performance in the 2022 uh, midterm election cycle, the, ma the map was already going to be uh, much more difficult for Democrats. And to Steve's point, it gets a, a lot more difficult now when you have someone like Gallego, uh, Cinema, and then whomever the Republican Party puts forth in a state that's still also similar to Georgia, a battleground state. So uh, this, this means that while they kept Kelly's seat, they can't guarantee that they'll be able to keep this seat uh, in their, their column in 2024. Anita, if you're in the White House and you're looking at this and you're reading the headlines this morning, what does this mean for the Biden agenda ahead? Well, the White House has been quick to say that nothing's changed. They've put out a statement that praises her, it praises cinema, and, you know, what else, What are they going to say? I mean, this makes things a little bit harder. I, I guess the question question they have to be thinking is, she's going to be true to her word? And in the interviews she had uh, with CNN, as well as my colleague, Burgess Everett at Politico, you know, she basically said nothing's going to change about her behavior, right? That she's going to be independent, but she's still going to caucus with the Democrats. She is, you know, she is still going to allow with this 51 majority that they're going to uh, be able to control the Senate committees, control the agenda. I mean, that's that's what President Biden is looking at right now. How is the control of the Senate? Senate, you know, can the Democrats still control what comes to the floor? Can they control the committees? And the answer is, if she's true to her word that she's going to continue the way she's she's been is that they can. And so there's, you know, while I'm sure this is a disappointment for them, there's probably also some relief that uh, she is not going to caucus with Republicans, for example, or she is going to, to stick with what she's been doing. She's always been a wild card for them. And so she will probably consider, you know, continue to be so, um, you know, not really sure where she's going to end up on some of these big issues on his agenda, but she has been pretty reliable um, on on certain things, including confirming his uh, nominees that he's put forth. So, uh, you know, they're probably just kind of holding their breath and waiting to see what happens. Steve, when, when you look at this and you look at her history of voting, what does that tell us about what we could expect and how big a deal this really is? Well, I think it's a signal that, that while she has stood behind the president, as Anita said, on you know, nominees and, and confirmations of those nominees, et cetera. She, she's sending a note that she's going to be a maverick, well, which we shouldn't be surprised by from Arizona, given John McCain's history and, you know, some of the currents in the state. And I think that she, look, the, the President Biden has one more seat breathing room with the win of Raphael Warnock. Uh, Joe Manchin was a key decider uh, on a lot of legislative um, um, life in the Senate. And, and I think she's sending a signal that she's going to be. So while, you know, they got one seat breathing room, I think that this is basically going to diminish a little bit of that comfort for the president. I think she's going to be a little bit more independent. You know, I happened to interview Senator Joe Manchin mm -hmm. uh, last night at the New York Economic Club, and he made the comment that he'd never agreed to or signed on to a party line vote for the Democrats. Mm -hmm. And I expect we're going to see the same thing from her. You're listening to the News Roundup. We're discussing some of the week's headlines. We'll be back with more in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor SmartWool. Our greatest adventures can't be gift-wrapped, but the SmartWool gear that makes them possible can. From award-winning merino wool base layers to must-have accessories and socks, the magic of merino will keep your loved ones warm and cozy all season long. Whether you're shopping for the all-day explorer or the late-night bonfire starter, find the perfect merino gift for every adventurer on your list. 
Enjoy 15% off your first purchase when you sign up for Smart Wool's mailing list. It's the News Roundup. Let's get back into the conversation. Well, after being detained in Russia for 294 days, WNBA star Brittany Griner is now a free woman. President Joe Biden made the announcement on Thursday. She wrote to me back in July. She didn't ask for special treatment, even though we've been working on a release from the day one. She requested a simple quote, please don't forget about me and the other American detainees. Please do all you can to bring us home. Griner's wife, Sherelle, expressed her joy and gratitude for the prisoner swap that led to Brittany's release. But big picture here, Anita, what does this move mean for President Biden? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, there was a lot of focus on Griner, right? She's probably the most high-profile American jailed abroad at, at the moment or was. And so while there are other Americans for sure that we have heard of and are hearing their stories, there was a lot of focus on this. And so the administration did make this obviously a priority. He is getting some criticism, though, from uh, you know other Americans that are uh, still in prison, that he, that he allowed uh, this swap that includes sort of this notorious arms dealer, um, you know, the, the, what they nicknamed the merchant of death for, for making that swap and saying that this wasn't a fair deal and that he shouldn't have let this, this uh, prisoner go back. So there is some criticism. There is some praise that this has happened. And it's a little bit of a, of a mixed, a mixed bag, I would say, you know, the president has said though, that he has not forgotten about the other uh, Americans and that he will continue to work on it. It wasn't, a, as he said yesterday, it wasn't something where he had a choice of another prisoner or more prisoners. It was this one swap or nothing. Let's talk a little bit more about some of those other Americans, because for a time, the administration was reportedly trying to free both Griner and another American in Russian detention, former Marine Paul Whelan. He actually spoke with CNN from Russia. I'm happy that Brittany is going home today, but I don't understand why I'm still sitting here. My bags are packed. I'm ready to go home. I just need an airplane to come and get me. You know, Steve, Whelan has been detained in Russia for nearly four years. It's heartbreaking to hear his, his voice that way. What, what do we know about why it's taken so long to get him out? Well, he was arrested and convicted in Russia for espionage, and um, he denies, and the U.S. government denies that there was anything. He's a, you know, also Canadian and Irish and a British citizen, in addition to being an American citizen. Uh, we are tech. I mean, we are basically at war with Russia uh, in a proxy war in in Ukraine, and that means that those people that Vladimir Putin holds, he can extract a very high price for because the countries are not trying to get along, not trying to solve these problems. Putin is trying to exact a price. And and the price for Brittany Griner was very high because Victor Bout is one of the most despicable people in the world. The merchant of death probably understates the impact. He had served half of his sentence. Uh, and so you can make an argument. And you know I have a lot of respect for people who work uh, to try to get these Americans who are taken, detained, uh, kidnapped, etc., or arrested around the world out. Governor Bill Richardson was very involved with this, as were others. 
and and I think that that the the calculus for getting them is always a complex one, um, and certainly um, you know Paul Whelan deserves all of our support to try and get him out. He claims he is innocent, and we as a government have said uh, he is innocent of of those charges. Um, but it's going to take another calculus and probably another high price for uh, uh, that Vladimir Putin is going to extract, and that's just the nature of the times where we are in. This is not the time of Putin meeting Trump in Helsinki and having a buddy buddy. Uh, uh, moment there. This is a time of tension with the Russians because they've invaded a sovereign country and we're fighting them. Mario, I want to share with you an email from Claudia who wrote in on this. She emails this. It's great that Brittany Griner is coming home, but there are many others imprisoned in Russia and not just Paul Whelan. One example is Mark Fogel, who, like Griner, was imprisoned for bringing medical marijuana into Russia. All the focus is on just two people, which leads one to think that only celebrities or people in high-profile jobs have a hope of being released. Mario, what would you say to Claudia? This is a, uh, and this kind of goes back to the points that Anita and Steve made, just the political calculation here that President Biden uh, made. You saw in his prepared remarks that he read from yesterday where he tried to kind of thread that needle uh, by uh, invoking uh, Waylon and others, uh, not necessarily by name in that regard uh, as well. But I think what you're saying here um, is, again, a political calculation on the part of the president to, uh, to, to reward his base in some ways. There was, there had been this, he had been under pressure for the perception, uh, particularly among Democratic voters and black voters, that the administration wasn't doing enough to get Griner home. And so in some ways you see an extension of what he had done the previous weekend where he moved South Carolina up to the front of the electoral map. So you're saying some of those things where he's trying to reward the base as well. So while it may look like an uneven trade or an unfair trade even, uh, given Victor Boot and, and Brittany Griner, again, domestically the president had been under uh, quite a, b- a bit of immense pressure from his base. Well, Steve, let me just ask you once more about Victor Boot here so folks understand. He, he was the, the one exchanged for Griner here. He's a well-known arms dealer. He was serving 25 years in a U.S. prison, in part for conspiracy to kill Americans. For folks who criticize this as a lopsided trade, what do we know about why Boot was such a priority for Russia to get released? And how concerned are U.S. officials about Boot returning to his line of work? Well, I think U.S. government officials are very worried about it. Those um, uh, officials who helped um, arrest and convict uh, Boot are, are uh, some of them have spoken out publicly and are, are very frustrated because they fear um, that the kind of transnational um, commercial work that this guy does on the, you know, in, in the sort of the dark arts, if you will, is something, one, you can sort of speculate maybe Putin wants that back in, in, in hand. You're having all sorts of problems with uh, Ukraine and supply and logistics and, and, and moving uh, material in a world in which Russia's trading options are much more limited. But this was a symbolic get for Vladimir Putin. He has long uh, wanted um, this person released from the U.S. and it has sort of been a cause celeb, if you will, in, in the Kremlin uh, to get him out. And so, you know, while I think Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan, I think the call, you know, the, the person you refer to is right. There are certain symbolic people that have been captured uh, in each side. Certainly Brittany Griner is one, one of those. But for Vladimir Putin, getting this person out is a big, uh, you know, uh, a trophy, uh, if you will, for the, the sense of power and capability that Putin has. So that's the real reason he wanted him out, and he's been wanting him out for a long time. 
Well, I want to turn now to a big moment in the House of Representatives here this week. On Thursday, the House passed the Respect for Marriage Act, which will add federal protections for same-sex and interracial couples. Today, we stand up for the values the vast majority of Americans hold dear, a belief in the dignity, beauty, and divinity in every person, an abiding respect for love so powerful that it binds two people together. That was outgoing Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. Anita, when you look at this bill, we know it now heads to President Biden's desk for his signature. What is the significance of this particular legislation? Well, I think it's a couple things. I mean, the thing I look at is that it's, you know, only months ago, it didn't seem to have any chance, right? Um, and, and as the years have gone on, it's just it's just kind of indicative of the political and cultural shift in this country on same-sex marriage. And I say that because obviously some Republicans voted for this, and it's something you would not have imagined years ago. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, this would have been unimaginable. Um, what this does is it repeals the Defense of Marriage Act, you know, which defined marriage between a man and a woman and, and allowed states to refuse to honor same-sex marriage performed in other states. Of course, we know that the Supreme Court, you know, ruled on, on same-sex marriage, and I guess there is some fear, not I guess, there is some fear that, the, that this conservative majority in the Supreme Court, uh, 6-3 majority, um, might do something that would uh, take that away. You know, this came up after the uh, decision this summer on abortion, and, and there are some people looking around and saying, well, wait a minute, what are these other things that the Supreme Court has allowed? And let's put this, codify this and put this into law. So mm -hmm. to me, it's just really, as, the, as you look back on the decade, just looking at this political and cultural shift in Congress and in America and how same-sex marriage is you know, is, is accepted is just sort of astonishing. Well, Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin was the lead sponsor um, of this legislation. She spoke with us back in July when the bill was first introduced. The same reasoning the court used to overturn Roe versus Wade could be applied to other precedent they have set in the past, including access to contraception and, and marriage equality. And so many people feel as though they lack certainty about the validity of their marriages moving forward. And marriage is so important in terms of protecting families. In a concurring opinion to the Supreme Court ruling that overturned Roe v. Wade, Justice Clarence Thomas argued the Supreme Court should revisit cases that protected gay marriage, same-sex relations, and contraception. So, Steve, let's talk about what Congress could do. Could they take any steps to codify any of those other protections into federal law? I guess they could, and, and, you know, perhaps it would be wise too. You know, I think one of the other dimensions of the Respect for Marriage Act is it also includes protections for interracial marriage, which if you look at the court decisions in the past, it was the one uh, part of the, you know, legal line that Clarence Thomas in his commentary on, on uh, 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 in, a, in a state commentary that he had not, did not mention that, but the Respect for Marriage Act does, does protect those. But I think that, you know, basically the court, the Supreme Court comes in and fills in the cap or provides clarity when law does not, when other laws pass. So doing the kinds of steps, the Respect for Marriage Act, or coming into these other categories of protections, um, I think is important to consider. But, you know, I think we also have to look at the fact that, that while some Republicans, 12 senators, 
Um, I think 41 Republicans, if, if I remember correctly, voted for the Respect for Marriage Act. You know, 71, 72% of Americans support same-sex marriage. And so you have a situation in which many Republicans don't feel like they can be aligned with the majority of Americans' views because of what's going on inside um, their party. Um, so it's just something to keep in mind. Let's turn now to some more news in the Supreme Court. On Wednesday, the justices heard oral arguments in a case that could upend the way elections are conducted. Republicans in North Carolina are pushing for state lawmakers to have near-complete control over how federal elections are run. This is a theory with big consequences. It um, it would uh, say that if a legislature engages in the most extreme forms of gerrymandering, Um, There is no state constitutional remedy for that, even if the courts think that that's a violation of the Constitution. It would say that legislatures could enact all manner of restrictions on voting, get rid of all kinds of (laughs) voter protections. That was Justice Elena Kagan speaking during oral arguments on Wednesday. Anita, talk to me about this case. How could it change the structure of federal elections? Yeah, it's a little bit uh, a little bit nuanced here, but if if you look at the big picture, it gives it would give state legislatures if it if it goes this way, sort of unchecked power, and that's what you heard justices sort of talking about. You know, there's checks and balances, obviously, at the federal level, but at the state level, these state courts are sort of a check on legislatures that are. Uh, you know, doing all sorts of election laws, drawing congressional maps, election rules, how how voting is conducted in each state. And this would largely limit states from getting involved. And so these legislatures, obviously partisan, these are Republicans and Democrats primarily, uh, would be allowed to uh, proceed with these laws and congressional maps as they see fit. And so it was striking this case because uh, you know, the liberals and uh, conservatives really, really were sort of almost even mocking each other because they felt like so strongly about this. Of course, we don't know which way this is going to go. The Supreme Court seemed to struggle a little bit to find a consensus. But some of these, it does seem like a block of justices seem likely to to reject the most robust version of this. So we don't know exactly how it's going to turn turn about, but we heard, you know, some justices saying, look, this is getting rid of the checks and balances that we uh, have in this country. Anita, I also want to ask you about another Supreme Court uh, case. They're deliberating on what many folks are calling another high-stakes case. On Monday, they heard oral arguments uh, on a case surrounding a Christian web designer who refused to work on same-sex couples' websites in Colorado. Um, and Anita, a lot of Supreme Court watchers say questions from the court's conservative majority seem to indicate they will rule in favor of the web designer. How do you look at it? Yeah, I mean, that's what, uh, you know, my colleagues and others that are following this case are saying that it looks like it. I mean, that's not a, a complete surprise seeing how the how the Supreme Court is made up now. Um, you mentioned this is a web designer who is saying that they want the right to refuse to provide services for same-sex marriages. Um, and this is something that the court has actually heard slightly different cases, obviously, before they've, uh, they've heard this issue. And uh, they seem to indicate the conservative justices, which of course have the majority, indicate support for this uh, person's view that businesses offering creative services 
like Web's design are protected by the First Amendment. So what this would do is be carve out an exemption for certain types of businesses um, that would say that they you know, would be allowed to, to refuse to do something. Um, and that's the big debate here. Is the First Amendment something that can be used this way or should people, should the justices protect, uh, you know, di- you know, protect against discrimination? And that's really uh, the issue here. And of course, as I mentioned, the Supreme Court has this 6-3 conservative majority. So it is looking like they are siding with the web designer. We'll be back with more of the week's biggest headlines in just a moment. Let's get back to the news roundup. Let's head now to New York. Former President Donald Trump's company was convicted on tax fraud charges by a Manhattan jury on Tuesday. The Trump organization was found guilty of multiple charges of tax fraud and falsifying business records in what was a 15-year scheme. Steve, when you look at this, uh, tell us about the penalties ahead. What kind of penalties could the Trump organization face when sentencing comes up in mid-January? I think that the... the, 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 the uh Trump Organization can face uh, up to $1.6 million in fines, which is given the scale of the, uh, you know, seeming offenses here, seems kind of small uh, at some level. I think that the bigger issues have been what penalties will certain involved people not face? And, you know, I'm just sort of thinking myself, Anita Kumar as heads of, you know, standards and practices at Politico, Alan Weisselberg, the uh, chief financial officer of the Trump Organization, is the one that uh, both the attorney defending the Trump Organization and the Trump family said he did it all on his own. This was entirely him. They had nothing to do with it nor any connection. And so the big story is the absolute disconnection so far of all Trump family members who were all connected to uh, this organization from any criminal liability thus far. So Anita Kumar, senior editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico, let's talk about the standards and ethics here. Uh, Steve is right. Former President Trump, his family, they're not charged in this case. Do we know about whether they could be held accountable in any way for his company's actions? Well, prosecutors are leaving that open. I mean, they haven't said, look, this is over. They, this case is over. This particular case that we saw, um, and, and Steve's right, Alan Weisselberg, uh, the longtime chief financial officer, he's worked for the Trump family for decades, did testify, um, but he was very, very careful as, as to how he did that. He talked about what was done. He admitted what was done, but he did say he, he was careful not to uh, blame uh, the Trump family. I do think that we are going to hear that the prosecutors have kind of said, look, it's not over. There's more to come. They've kind of hinted at that. And I think a lot of people are looking to see what that is, what is next. I mean, there has been some criticism um, and some questions about why this didn't deal with specific people. And I just think that, you know, it's not over until it's over. We've seen, of course, President Trump face other uh, allegations and other possible, um, you know, cases in in a lot of other in in both in New York and Georgia and other places. Of course, the the Congress is still investigating the Justice Department, all for different issues. And I do think that most of these, I think there's probably half a dozen, five or so, um, are not over, and they these things take a long time. So I think this will continue to to go on. Mario, we know President, former President Trump is quick to defend himself, quick to call any kind of action against him or anything he's related to a hoax or undermine it. 
What kind of response have we heard from him on any of this? Oh, it's absolutely that, that this is a witch hunt, that this is politically motivated, that uh, New York is uh, expending resources on he and his family and their operation at the expense of rising crime. So you're saying uh, former President Trump uh, hit the usual notes that that we're used to him uh, playing in in these matters. But I mean, again, this cumulatively, this has just been a terrible, terrible last 30, 45 days for the former president, uh, particularly since he announced a third White House bid. It's been investigation after investigation. It's been uh, just political uh, fumbles and missteps, uh, some of them uh, very damaging. Uh, he's never been uh, as politically weakened as he is at this point, maybe since uh, the aftermath of January 6th. Well, Steve, what about that? I mean, this is, as Mario noted, just weeks after he had announced his candidacy for 2024. Does this legally or politically impact that? Well, right now, you you, you can be, uh, uh, you know, charged with crimes and run for president. You can do a lot of things for president. You can have uh, dinner with uh, antis. I mean, you know, all the, you know, we've been, you know, at Semaphore the other day, my colleagues, uh, Shelby Talcott and Kadia Goba wrote a great piece on just what disarray the Trump campaign is in. So even before you get into the criminal or potential criminal de- uh, dimensions or the criminal referrals that Donald Trump may be involving and fighting, and a lot of people you know, wondered whether the announcement by President Trump uh, that he would run again was really designed to sort of deflect a lot of uh, these legal challenges of the moment. But there's nothing that stops President Trump that I can see from actually uh, moving forward with his campaign should he want to. What right now is getting in the way are is the time, the distraction, potentially the financial cost, because the you know no longer the Republican National Committee can no longer pay his legal fees. So his situation to many outsiders seems to be deteriorating, but that's the way it always looks with President Trump, and he still seems to do quite well, uh, surprisingly, uh, in many situations. So we just don't know the answer to that question. Anita, what about the party. What about the Republican Party and all of this? We did see coming out of the midterms and a number of the candidates who former President Trump had backed after they lost those elections, you started to see some of those more senior Republicans break away from him a little bit. Do any of this, does any of this impact Republican support moving forward? It is the question we always ask. <laughs> you know, I covered President Trump in the Trump White House for four years, and there was always a moment, it was pretty regularly, that we would say, okay, this is the moment. The party's going to leave him. He is going to lose his support. And it really didn't happen. Of course, it did happen with some particular people. You know, and of course, there's a lot of uh, Republican leaders he doesn't get along with. The Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump did have a falling out. And so I'm not saying those things haven't frayed. But when you do look at the polls, when you do look at uh, you know how he fares, not around the country, but with Republicans and the Republican Party, he's still quite popular. I mean, he's still uh, the the you know, get in the polls on Republican voters for 2024, he's still right up there, you know, uh, more support than anyone else. I think Florida Governor Ron DeSantis might be the next one, but there's still, you know, a huge difference. So, you know, we'll see, we'll see. We mentioned all these different cases that are going on, but President Trump does have this way of sort of eking it out. I will say that he also does something that has really worked well for him on the political side, which is he takes these 
cases. He takes these criticisms and he turns it around. And when he's out there on the campaign trail, he says, uh, you know, exactly what Mario said. It's it's a witch hunt, right? They're after me. And he's turned that into maybe not a political win, but a, but an advantage with some of his supporters that he, he, it works when you go talk to them, as I did for many years, they say, look, they are out to get him and I'm going to support him because look at all that he's had to endure. So he has made this work in some, some ways, but, um, you know, I would say in the last several months and, and of course the last year since January 6th, things have changed. And so we'll see, we'll see what that looks like over the next, you know, two years, if he does, fully go through with the running and, and whoever else comes into the into to challenging him. Steve, how do you look at this issue? I mean, we should note one of the things we hear more frequently from Republicans is they want to see a number of qualified candidates throw their hats into the ring for 2024. And when you press them on whether or not they would support former President Trump, you get different answers to varying degrees. How, how are you looking at it at this stage in time? Well, I, I think it's a real challenge for the Republican mainstream party that wants to get back to some form of governing, getting high quality candidates, because that's not the litmus test for Donald Trump, who remains the single most vibrant and vital part of the Republican Party uh, as far as the base is concerned. And what he wants are loyalists. And so loyalists above everything else uh, to him and to however he defines what the party is, is what matters. And so that's an incredible tension inside um, the Republican Party right now. And we're going to see a civil war, in my view, um, and, you know, during the next year as this continues to play out. But, you know, I'll go back to something Anita said at the very beginning of our show today, you know, that we respond to a lot of questions in terms of Trump. Trump drives our attention. He is a defining feature of this. You know, I sort of feel like there was a moment before the Mar-a-Lago raid by the FBI or the classified, uh, the, the, the mismanagement of classified documents by President Trump, allegedly, is that... Um, I thought the Republican establishment, particularly Rupert Murdoch and Fox, were divorcing themselves and distancing themselves in a definitive way from Trump. And he was, we were going to see him like a rock star plummet to, you know, smaller playhouses and stuff mm-hmm. uh, after having saturated the market. You know, that raid brought Donald Trump back to life. Uh, it probably also helped the Democrats do better than expected in the midterm elections. Mm-hmm. And so Donald Trump, at least right now in this moment in history, is a ball and chain around the neck of the Republican Party and those people who want to take it in a different place. But it's very hard to shake him. Well, the Biden administration hopes to keep a policy called Title 42 in place a little while longer. Now, Title 42 is a CDC rule that was first used by the Trump administration during the pandemic. It gives U.S. southern border agents more power to expel migrants without having to weigh and consider their asylum claims. Uh, Anita, let's talk a little bit about this. Now, what exactly does the Biden administration want to see happen here? Yeah, this is a really, really interesting situation in that when President Biden came into office and and on the campaign trail, he said he was going to get rid of all the Trump um, immigration restrictions that had been in place. But they, the Biden administration actually embraced this one, much to the surprise of a lot of the advocates. Um, this, as you mentioned, this keeps some of these uh, migrants that are trying to come um, away. This is because of the pandemic. Of course, we're 
we're years into the pandemic, and there are a lot of people that are saying, look, the, the Biden administration is using it just as President Trump did. They're using it for immigration reasons and not for health reasons. Uh, what is happening is that a, a federal court decision came down some weeks ago that blocked the use of this policy. Uh, the Biden administration said this week that they're actually going to appeal that. So they're trying to uh, get this judge, it's a judge, uh, a U.S. district judge, to uh, change its mind or, or appeal that decision um, to be able to continue to use this uh, policy. They're basically saying that they... Um, the, the CDC did the right thing and that they were able to uh, use Title 42. So this has been going on now for years, um, and there's been a lot of court cases on it, and and we'll sort of see what happens. The, the difference, I think, this time was that the judge had given the administration uh, some time to decide about the appeal and, and to, to sort of decide what they wanted to do next. And the administration has now said that they're planning on appealing. Mario, I think it's fair to say immigration is always a hot button political issue. How do these contours and what's happening at the U.S. southern border right now, how does this change the conversation? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, always a tough conversation uh, generally, but uh, particularly tough for the Biden administration. Republicans have really honed in on uh, the surge of migrants at the border. It's a political weakness for uh, the White House and the president as well. And so you're seeing some of that uh, some of that delicate dance uh, take place here, right, where on the one hand, the administration is uh, challenging, uh, challenging the, the, the order by by saying that they want to essentially uh, keep CDC's authority or keep the authority for f for future pandemics or instances like this in which the C CDC would have the authority to uh, over the border and, and migrants to stop the spread of uh, particularly like something like COVID-19 in this case. Um, but at the same time, the the the, the administration is saying that, hey, you know what? We were actually planning to go ahead and lift it anyway, right? Mm -hmm. So in order to keep migrants out, which is, again, an acknowledgement of just how politically tricky it is and how it's been a weakness, again, for the administration given the surge of migrants at the border. And anytime we talk about immigration, I think we need to underscore the fact that there has not been any meaningful congressional overhaul or reform in almost 30 years. That is worth pointing out. Thank you to all of you for joining our conversation today. Anita Kumar is the senior editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico. Steve Clemens is an editor-at-large for Semaphore. And Mario Parker is a national politics editor at Bloomberg News. Thank you to all of you for joining us. And before we go, a remembrance. Well, now, who are the people in your neighborhood? In your neighborhood, in your neighborhood, say. Sesame Street's Bob McGrath died of complications following a stroke on Sunday in New Jersey. Born in Illinois in the 1930s, McGrath studied music at the University of Michigan and later received a master's from the Manhattan School of Music. McGrath began singing with vocal groups in college and continued after graduating. Though he made television appearances with some of those groups, McGrath found musical success in Japan. There, he released several albums with songs both in English and Japanese. It wouldn't be until 1969 that McGrath would become an American household name. 
He joined the cast of Sesame Street as a music teacher, staying with the show for nearly 50 years. Hi, beautiful. Who, me? Sure you. Oh, I'm not beautiful. Of course you are. To be beautiful, all you have to do is to think beautiful. No kidding. Mm-hmm. Don't you know you're McGrath's performances captivated audiences from toddlers to adults, oftentimes mirroring the pop culture at the time. Sing, sing a song. Sing a song. Bob McGrath was 90 years old. That's good. Sing out strong. Sing of good things, not bad. Sing of happy, not sad. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. We'll discuss some of the biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. Stay with us. Make it simple to last your whole life long. Don't worry that it's not good. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Amna Nawaz of the PBS NewsHour, in for Jen White. Let's get into the international edition of the News Roundup. Brittany Griner is back home. In the small hours, the two-time Olympic gold medalist and basketball star was seen getting off a plane that landed at Joint Base San Antonio Lachlan in Texas. We'll talk more about that prisoner swap in this hour. Plus, big news this week from Peru, from Germany, and for those who follow the round ball game, from Morocco. Joining us this week, Nancy Youssef. Nancy is national security correspondent at the Wall Street Journal. Nancy, thanks for being here. Great to be with you. Emily Tamkin is senior editor U.S. at The New Statesman, a British political and cultural magazine. She's the author of Bad Jews, a history of American Jewish politics and identities. Hi, Emily. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. And we welcome Bloomberg's Katrina Manson. She looks at cyber and national security. Katrina, good to have you here. Thanks for having me. So let's start off with Brittany Griner and the news this week. Nancy, kick us off. What do we know about what went into this deal to secure her release? So this was um, 10 months in the making, and yesterday we got the surprising news that she had been removed from the penal colony where she was being held for a nine-plus-year sentence for a very minor infraction um, in Russia. And she arrived at the United Arab Emirates. She was on the tarmac. On one side is um, uh, her, and on the other side is um, uh, a drug, uh, excuse me, an arms trafficker named Victor Boot. They sort of cross paths. And um, she is flown to the United States. She's arrived this morning in San Antonio, Texas, where she will undergo um, an evaluation and a reintegration back into American society. We know that this sort of came together in the last week, and it was in the last 48 hours prior that this um, appeared to be imminent. Um, And we know that this was a hard-fought negotiation, that the Russians used um, her imprisonment and the U.S. desire to get her back to get back someone who they valued probably more than anyone else held in the United States, um, Victor Boot, and that despite the efforts by the U.S. to get other um, um, 
prisoners in Russia out, um, notably Mr. Whalen. The U.S. was unable to that the Russian proposition was either you can have Miss Greiner back for Victor Boot, or you can have no one, but they're under under no circumstances could you have both. And I think that was surprising to some because Victor Boot was seen as such a, a valued um, um, exchange for the Russians. I think there was a hope that, that more people could be released from Russia through this exchange. But she's here now, um, and I think it was a pleasant surprise for many um, who'd been following her case and, and feared that she, and I know she feared, said she feared, being forgotten and held uh, in Russia for the next nine years. Nancy, you mentioned Paul Whelan. We should note that speaking alongside the president on Thursday at the White House was Brittany Griner's wife, Sherelle, and she spoke of her relief and commitment to work hard for the release of other Americans held abroad, including Paul Whelan. BG's not here to say this, but I will gladly speak on her behalf and say that BG and I will remain committed to the work of getting every American home, including Paul, whose family is in our hearts today as we celebrate BG being home. We do understand that there are still people out here who are enduring what I endured the last nine months of missing tremendously their loved ones. And Paul Whelan's brother, David, spoke to CNN about Griner's release and whether he's ever going to see his brother back home. It's hard to process this in real time, which is what we had to do last April when Paul was left behind before and uh, Trevor Reed came home. Um, but we do we do worry about what's, uh, what's in Paul's future. I think it's become clear that the U.S. doesn't have any concessions that the Russian government wants for Paul. And uh, so I'm not really sure what the future holds. Nancy, do we know why the Russians are treating Paul Whelan's case differently? So this is just conjecture on my part. Um, what they have said is that they see him differently than others, that they see um, Mr. Whelan as a spy and 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 where Brittany Griner wasn't facing those kinds of charges. Hers was having a small amount of cannabis oil. And I and again, this is conjecture on my part that they have decided that in that in return for uh, Paul Whelan, that they need someone the equivalent in their minds uh, a spy. This, that's pure conjecture on my part, based on the limited information that they've given. I think one can also um, speculate that because there was so much public interest in getting Brittany Griner back, that the Russians calculated that the U.S. would be willing to give a lot for her to come back home. And for them, Victor Boot was was the person that they valued. And so um, if you're the Russians and you've decided that there's a need for someone equivalent, um, then then maybe they saw Waylon as an opportunity to get more of their prisoners out. But I think at the at the very minimum, they understood that um, Brittany Greiner was very valued publicly from the United States and that they wanted their high profile public figure back as well in exchange. Emily, that high profile was really true for Brittany Greiner's case back here, right? The WNBA was determined not to let her name fade from the headlines. How important was that in putting pressure on the State Department and the White House to cut a deal? No, I, I mean, I, I think that the the Biden administration and the State Department took this extremely seriously from the get-go. Initially, those close to her and the U.S. government said, we really don't want to raise pressure uh, or, or raise her profile, as that is not actually useful in diplomatic negotiations. But on the other hand, you know, for for uh, for her and, you know, to, to for public consciousness, um, obviously it's important to, to keep her front of mind. And so there was a sort of... Uh, it, it, it sort of seems like diplomacy and uh, I don't want to call it morality, but just, you know, the, the, the human dignity in the case um, were were at odds. I, and I also just want to note that um, 
the Whelan family yesterday put out what I consider to be a very gracious statement um, where, in which they said, you know, we, we understand that they were not going to get both and we think that the administration did the right thing in letting somebody who could come home, come home. Um, but, you know, Paul Whelan has been in Russia for four years now. Um, and as his brother said, his parents are getting older. They don't know if they will see him again. They understand that Russia sees him differently, um, but they, they too see him differently, right? As their brother, as their son, um, as a person that they, that they want to see again. Katrina, what can you tell us about Victor Boot, the man that the Russians wanted back and got in this prisoner swap? Victor Boot, uh, this is a man that uh, CIA director has described as a, as a creep, uh, even quite recently. But his reputation started gathering pace back in the 1990s. I I used to be based in the Democratic Republic of of Congo and in Sierra Leone, and there were accusations about him then. In fact, this term that a lot of people will have heard this week, uh, merchant of death, this comes from a a, a British Minister of State for Africa, who in 2000, this is Peter Hayne, he called him a merchant of death for the role that he accused him of playing in in delivering weapons to Sierra Leone and Angola. Uh, And and the US, of course, has spent years tracking him down. There was a very elaborate sting operation that in the end the the DEA did, um, getting him out of of Russia, um, doing a sting operation in Asia, getting him back to the US um, and and getting him um, indicted. He's serving, he was serving a, a a sentence for 25 years. He served 12 years of that, and senior administration officials were, you know, in their attempt to justify the, this deal, saying 12 years is a lot. We've got a lot from this. Um, but it's also someone that, at, at the time, a State Department official called him the personification of evil. So it is extraordinary to think that this arms dealer who has um, worked across Africa is is back. And of course. It's at a time that Russia needs weapons uh, for for Ukraine, and um, the Biden administration says that it's weighed the consequences, and it's it's pretty unclear what what Boot might be able to do now today back in Russia. Indeed, it may be a little bit of an embarrassment for for the Russians to have him back. But of course, it's being greeted. Uh, there was a Russian official who said his return is a true Christmas present. So this is a real chance for the Russians to say they've done very well. And I, I think it's interesting to go back to Peter Hayne, that that UK minister who who first described him as the merchant of death, he commented on Boots' release saying that that he saw this as as a grubby deal. Emily, we know it wasn't just Griner in Russia. As we mentioned, it was Paul Whelan who's still there. Mark Vogel is also still detained there, another American citizen. And in July, a senior State Department official said there's between 40 and 50 Americans being wrongfully detained by foreign governments across the country, across the world, rather. How does the U.S. strategy with Brittany Griner and this whole case impact any of those? I think that those will all continue to be ongoing. You know, I think I, in the same way that this was a surprise after a public surprise after months of negotiations, um, even in governments where even in countries where the U.S. doesn't have direct ties, there are. So, for example, I'm thinking of, you know, North Korea, um, where Sweden acts as a go between or Iran, where it's Switzerland. Um, this is always, I, I don't want to sound like I'm doing PR for the State Department, but the truth is this is always an ongoing part of the work that um, that an, a U.S. administration does because there are Americans wrongfully detained around the world and there are people whose, whose job, it went, you know, when this fades from the headline, when this fades from the headlines, but it's not top of mind, people are st- who are still working to bring these Americans home. And, and Emily, just briefly, if we can, do, do we know what Brittany Griner deals with now that she's back? 
I, you know, Nancy mentioned at the top reentry to, or you mentioned at the top reentry to society. Um, no, I, I mean, I, I, I can't imagine. I know you mean this in sort of the practical steps of, but you know, I, could, could I, I, I can't. Jump in? Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, the only reason I mention it is because um, I covered the U.S. military and she's headed to a um, Brooke Army Medical Center. And it's actually quite um, fascinating because they have a reintegration process that could take days, if not weeks. Simple things like being able to decide when you wake up, when you go to sleep are all things that they're going to have to sort of reintroduce her to her because for months she didn't have those options. Mm -hmm. And it was a process born out of POWs in Vietnam. And so there's a there's a very slow process to kind of reintroduce her to freedoms that we all take for granted. But when you're held in captivity, you don't have one imagines that right now she's being reunited with her family. Mm -hmm. It's not like on television where it's going to be um, a, a running down the, the runway. It's going to be um, a very um, measured process. She might not see them more than 45 minutes because to yeah. do more could potentially overwhelm there her. There is a long and road ahead. Next, we turn to this week's dramatic events in Germany. On Wednesday, local authorities arrested more than two dozen members of a far-right group. Prosecutors say they were part of a plot to violently overthrow the government. We had these groups in our sights for several months now. Because of the mounting evidence of concrete plans for a violent overthrow, and that too with the use of weapons, it was time to bring in the police and state prosecutors. That is Thomas Haldenwong with Germany's Domestic Intelligence Agency speaking with DW News. Nancy, many of those arrested in this were part of a group called Citizens of the Reich, Reichsburger. What do we know about this group and, and what are their aims? So Reichsburger is one of um, several extremist groups um, that are in Germany. They basically deny the existence of the German state. Um, the estimates in, within Germany is that there are 21,000 members, 2,000 of them um, considered to be potentially violent. And so um, the the numbers are, are pretty extraordinary, and yet they're one of only several groups that um, um, are operating with um, this sort of ideology. And they apparently were the keystone of this um, elaborate operation in which they would um, storm the German capital, arrest lawmakers, and put a former uh, a prince from German nobility as their, as their leader. And so um, I think while um, before Germans were one to dismiss um, these groups and members of them as sort of um, on the fringes, I think what we saw this week is that they actually present real tangible threats to, to governance. So, Nancy, with that many members, do we know if more arrests are expected? What's ahead? The assumption is that there are more arrests. I think there have been suggestions of that. There have been 25 arrests so far. But as as you know, a plot this big um, presumably has more people involved in it. And it's not just the numbers, but where they're arresting people. So far, they've arrested a judge. They've arrested um, and a member, a former member of parliament. They've arrested police officers. They've arrested elite members of their, of their special forces. And so these are people who are being arrested in, in places where they have infiltrated um, Germans, German government. These are not people who are um, on the outside. They're inside plotting against the very government that they're supposed to be serving. Emily, what do we know about how far they got in their plans, how capable they could have been to actually overthrow the government? 
I mean, I, th- I think we should stress this by all accounts seemed like a pretty bad plan, uh, which is why it was foiled. You're not going to be able to storm uh, storm the Reichstag and it, with, with the modern German state um, and install a, an aristocrat from a former royal family, like from a royal family of yours. That's just not going to happen. Um, um, but as Nancy says, the fact that, you know, the, 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 the sheer fact of how many people were involved in this, um, that it got far enough for there to be arrests, is itself concerning uh, for, you know, for the state of, of politics in Germany today and for how widespread conspiracy theories on the German far right are. Um, I also do want to note, so the basically the plan was to put in um, Heinrich the Thirteenth, Prince Royce. I believe it's Heinrich the Fourteenth who came out and said that this was horrible for the family and a disgrace and and so on and so forth. So bad for Germany and a, a, a rough one for the House of Reuss. Reuss, excuse me. Nancy, there there is that conspiracy theory link here, and specifically to QAnon that we should mention. And QAnon is an American-born dangerous extremist conspiracy theory. Some of those arrested were followers, supporters of, of QAnon. So what is the connection, if any, between this German far-right group and what we see in America today? So according to extremist researchers, um, QAnon has the biggest number of followers outside of the United States in Germany. That said, there's no evidence that they were that the German conspirators were communicating with American conspirators. But um, I think where you see sort of similarities is um, they were inspired by, some would argue, what they saw on January 6th. They were both sort of fueled by uh, conspiracy theories born out of the pandemic and the um, and the subsequent shutdown, we saw, for example, in April, some of um, some extremist groups tried to kidnap the German health minister. I think uh, um, the the big difference is that while because of January sixth, because of events in the U.S., there's more awareness of the threats than um, than than Germany was up until this week, and so there was inspiration um, from QAnon. But I don't think we can make a direct link between the groups. At least there hasn't been any evidence of that yet. We are talking to Emily Tamkin, senior editor U.S. at The New Statesman and Bloomberg's Katrina Manson. She covers cyber and national security. Also, Nancy Youssef, national security correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. I want to turn now to two big stories to talk about in Latin America. We start in Peru, which just got its first female president, Dina Boluarte. Former President Pedro Castillo was impeached this week after he attempted to dissolve Peru's Congress and replace it with an emergency governing body. And the head of Peru's constitutional court accused him of launching a coup and lawmakers met to impeach him. Emily, give us the background here. What can you tell us about the events that led up to Peru's ex-president deciding he wanted to dissolve the government? Right. So Castillo was elected last year and promised to end, you know, corruption as normal, business as normal um, in Peruvian politics. In fact, in office, he was accused of doing exactly the opposite. And so Congress, Peruvian, Peru's Congress was going to meet to decide to impeach him. Um, in order to try to avoid this, he said, actually, I'm dissolving Congress and installing an emergency government, which um, was, you know, very quickly taken to be uh, a coup. Um, even his allies broke with him. He was removed from office. He was placed under arrest. As you say, his vice president is now the first woman uh, to, to lead Peru. I think, you know, we were just talking about connections or, or, or similarities between um, the story in Germany and January 6th. I think one could also see certain parallels with our own, uh, with, with January 6th again, the difference being uh, that the, the president's allies very quickly broke with him um, and said, this is not what we do here. 
and you are going to face immediate consequences for your actions. Um, so it's obviously it's not good that this happened, but I think that if we look at the way in which the country responded, um, it could actually be taken as taken as a sign of commitment to commitment to um, you know good governance and and accountability. Meanwhile, in Argentina, Vice President Cristina Fernandez has been sentenced to six years in prison. She has also been banned for life from holding public office over a billion-dollar fraud scheme. Katrina uh, Fernandez was found guilty of embezzling a billion dollars through public works projects during her presidency. She held that office from 2007 to 2015. Explain to us what happened here. Yeah, it's rather extraordinary. In 2011, when she was re-elected president, she said, what more could I want? And and, uh, in a way that the result today shows that a billion dollars was what she wanted. 2007 to 2015, when she was president, um, the court convicted her of skimming uh, a billion dollars in fake contracts. These were bogus contracts for 51 sets of public works um, in in league with a a family friend who was a a construction magnate. Um, She she was let off on, on one other element of an illicit association with that person, but she was found guilty of graft and as as you mentioned a lifetime ban from from holding office and given this is someone who has held office um, not only as president she's now vice president um, she's a real political survivor uh, in a a country where politics is often described as a blood sport and indeed she survived uh, a botched assassination attempt just uh, this year in September so there's a huge amount riding on on this um, decision to go after her it's the first um, president ever to be um, vice president uh, to, to 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 be convicted for a crime like this, um, she has indicated she she might appeal, um, but that she won't stand again. If she, if she didn't, she might lose that um, immunity in future. Um, but at the moment, it, it it's it's a huge issue for for of course Argentina in, in a in a country that is suffering enormous economic issues, inflation heading towards uh, 100% and an economy that's been nosediving since 2018. Nancy, meanwhile, the president, Alberto Fernandez, no relation to Cristina Fernandez, um, has said that she's innocent. He wrote on Twitter that the sentencing is, quote, the result of a trial in which the minimum forms of due process were not taken care of. Politically, especially given the challenges uh, that Katrina just laid out, how does the country move forward from here? Well, that's a really good question because, you know, um, she has been, since she entered politics in the 1990s, Ms. Fernandez has been one of Argentina's most influential and polarizing politicians. She was a senator. She was a first lady president and vice president. And even now, polls show that I think upwards of 34 percent said that they would, in one poll, said that they would support her no matter what. And so how, how she is treated, I think, really speaks to how some Argentinians see their future. Opponents say that the charges against her give her hope, give them all hope of justice. Her supporters see this as um, a witch hunt against a very effective politician. And so as long as this case persists, as long as she is now out of politics um, for next year's elections, I think it, it, it sort of becomes to personify the division within Argentina about its politics going forward. And we should mention, as we said at the beginning, she has been banned for life from holding public office over that billion-dollar fraud scheme. Next to Russia, where many hundreds of miles from its border with Ukraine 
bombs rained down on Monday and Tuesday. Now, Russia blamed Ukraine for the drone raids, but Kyiv hasn't officially taken responsibility. Katrina, what do we know about these attacks? What was targeted and the damage done? Uh, there were three airfields that, that were hit, and I think Russia's taken qu- quite a shock. I mean, this does count as escalation. Local officials there have been now um, trying to establish their own physical defences. And if you look at the way Russia responded, uh, Putin suddenly, uh, you know, a day or two later, was on TV uh, discussing his own potential escalation uh, use of nuclear. He refused when asked by um, uh, Russians at a, a Kremlin Human Rights Council in televised remarks to, to rule out the first use of, of nuclear weapons. So if you're talking about escalation, that, that really is it. He claims that his, uh, that, that, that his nuclear capacity is, in fact, a deterrent. Um, so it will be interesting to see if any more um, strikes happen in Russian territory. The U.S. is in quite a tricky position because they are trying to obviously ensure that uh, Ukraine is uh, well stocked, is doing its fight, but it's but it's not saying that um, it would condone uh, a- a- any such attack by Ukraine if Ukraine were to admit that they'd done it. Uh, but, and the other thing is that it really does speak to the role of, of drones in this war. The Russians have been resupplied, um, we think, with Iranian drones, um, quite recently. So it's it's a high-tech war that is really uh, playing out now on both sides of the border. Emily, what about the U.S. role in this? I mean, the U.S. has been clear it played no part in encouraging these attacks inside Russia. But what should we take away from this, especially given the level of intelligence needed to carry out these kinds of attacks? Right. I mean, we should stress that these were um, dom- these were domestically modified Soviet-era drones, which speaks to Ukraine's own capabilities to sort of innovate as this war goes on, but not necessarily in a way that that the United States might like. Right. And this is actually not the first time. Obviously, the United States has been supporting Ukraine and 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 does support um, the the broader Ukrainian cause and its sovereignty. But there are moments where Ukrainian defense and the U.S. Um, how to put this? The desire to contain this. Um, and, and to try to reach a resolution are, you know, are perhaps at odds. Well, on Wednesday, we should note Russian President Vladimir Putin spoke in a televised meeting. He acknowledged his operation in Ukraine was taking longer than expected, but he also promised not to let up. Russia's invasion began more than nine months ago on February 24th. Katrina, when you listen to what Putin had to say, what else did you take away from his remarks? I think really it's this nuclear issue. I mean, this is the thing that is is used. The Europeans say that he he talks about um, uh, nuclear attacks as a way of trying to discourage the Europeans and the Americans from resupplying the Ukrainians. And when I when I speak to officials here, they say that largely the, the end of the war, that 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 moment of uh, conclusion, they think will be determined by economic issues. Of course, that's a reference to rising energy prices, how much Europe is and European populations are prepared to withstand the pain of that war. And when Putin has acknowledged that, of course, it's stretched on far, far beyond the initial three days that the Moscow thought that they could take um, over the whole of Ukraine in, um, it shows that Putin has resolved to 
keep going. And really that puts the onus back on, of course, Ukrainian resolve, which we see is still extremely strong despite uh, blackouts, the winter coming, you know, huge, huge risks for the, the population, um, which is really digging into all sorts of things, de gathering data on war crimes coming up with. There was just a Ukrainian high-level delegation in the US uh, making deals for extra cloud storage. I mean, the Ukrainian um, uh, leaders are thinking very carefully about how to sustain the population um, with unemployment rates, trying to get small businesses going. Uh, this is all a game, not a game, of course, it's a war, uh, about now how to sustain it, to keep uh, both sides going. And it is all about who caves first and what that looks like. Well, Nancy, resolve is one thing, right? Resources are another. Uh, does Russia have what it needs to continue moving and see through what Putin promised would be a meaningful result? I think what Russia has is um, more resources to to draw from. They have a bigger population. They have more military resources. And so in that regard, they can continue to fight this fight. But whether they have the will with every passing month as they lose territory, as Things like the drone attacks where Russians are now seeing the threat happening inside their borders, potentially to them, allows this um, war to continue. I think that remains to be seen. It, but, but they have the ability in terms of resourcing to keep it going. But as we've learned in this war, that that can mean very little because what we've seen from the Ukrainians is ingenuity. We've seen a constitution to endure um, a lot of hardship. Right now, half the population is without electricity. And so what we're learning, if nothing else, is that war is fought beyond weapons, beyond training. Um, it can often come down to the spirit of an individual soldier. And this week, Time magazine chose Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and the Spirit of Ukraine as its annual person of the year. Last year, we should note, they picked Elon Musk. And the women of Iran are the magazine's heroes of the year. Next up, we wade into matters of morality. Around the world this week, we've seen governments intervene on sex outside marriage, dress codes, and gay rights. Iran has been in the international spotlight for months as people protest the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini. She died in September after being detained by the so-called morality police. But the status of Iran's morality police is unclear after reports that Tehran had disbanded the force and if the country would continue to insist that women wear the hijab. The U.S.-based Iranian activist Masi Alinejad told ABC News to treat all official information out of Tehran with a high degree of caution. Look, a regime that killed more than 500 people just in two months suddenly comes up with idea and saying that we're going to abolish morality police. Of course, it was a propaganda move by the Islamic Republic. They know how to use disinformation to mislead the rest of the world or to uh, calm down the protesters within the society. Nancy, when you look at this, what, what is going on here? Was this a botched attempt by the Iranian regime to quell the protests or something else? So I thought your speaker had a lot of good points in that, um, look, even if it had been true and it came from one official, it doesn't really matter until they um, repeal the the law um, that requires hijab because even if you get rid of the morality police, there are other police forces that could have enforced it. And so it was. It appeared to be a symbolic move at, at most, as your um, speaker said previously, maybe 
um, to, to speak to the West, to speak to the protesters. And, and she also mentioned, I think it's worth noting that, that the, this is started as a movement about the hijab, but has become really a bigger one. And so repealing or excuse me, removing the morality police doesn't address the broader political, social and economic demands of this movement. And so um, it appeared to be an attempt um, to perhaps shape international discourse to quell the concerns of some protesters, but it was always uh, symbolic and it didn't, it didn't, promise the end of this three-month movement in which the demands are so fundamental um, to how Iran should be governed going forward. Katrina, the fact that these have been going on for three months now, I mean, how do you look at, at this, at the protests where they are now and how the regime has responded? Uh, well, well, it's obviously key that the protests are continuing. There's real emphasis behind this. And it, it takes me back to, um, th- th- there are some parallels in what I'm going to say, and obviously not. Th- there's a limit to how many parallels there are. But I was in uh, Sudan in 2013 reporting on women who were campaigning against what was then a ban on uh, women wearing trousers. And they could be arrested and uh, given 40 lashes for that. Um, and, and the same with requiring headscarves to enter places like universities. And it was an incredibly long slog. In 2008, um, the Sudanese regime arrested 40,000 women for indecencies when I was there in 2013. Uh, the public outcry uh, continued. And it, and it was very much tied up with um, Omar al-Bashir's um, Islamist-backed uh, coup that he, he took over in 89. And he, he continued in that regime. And I think What's what's notable is how combined um, the, the the requirements for how women dress became with the regime itself, and it's only in 2019 that those uh, rules were overturned after a, a change in regime. And so, of course, what is so threatening to um, uh, the, the government in Iran is is that the call for women to stop wearing the hijab is very much tied up with much broader calls for change in Iran's society and government. And whether they decide to um, soften long term or whether the, the regime at some point has an end date. I mean, those are the things that are all being balanced very carefully. Meanwhile, in Indonesia, lawmakers have passed a new criminal code that makes sex outside of marriage illegal. The law also applies to foreign residents and visitors. Uh, Katrina, human rights advocates have called that new code alarming. So in a country that doesn't allow same-sex marriage, who, who's being targeted here and how do they enforce this? Uh, well, it, it's important to say this this hasn't come in yet. It's been voted on, but it, um, well, it's, it's approved. But the, the details will take three years to go through. It's something that Indonesia has been considering for years. Um, it, it, they tried to bring it in in 2019, and there was widespread protest against this. So it'll be interesting to see, uh, key to see, how they decide to actually get the details uh, for how they'll implement it. Um there, there are quite extraordinary comments from people in Indonesia saying, I already live with someone. What am I going to do? I mean, the, the rules were watered down a, a little bit to say that only certain people could actually make the accusation. It needs to be family members. Um, but there are plenty of people saying they, they don't want family members having that right over them. 
And a new law also went into effect in Russia, we should know, where Vladimir Putin has expanded his ban on LGBTQ, quote unquote, propaganda. Emily, this is an expansion of a law that's already on the books in Russia. What do we know about why Putin is pushing these through now? That's right. So there's a 2013 law that says that you cannot disseminate um, information related to LGBT, LGBTQ identity to minors, um, not dissimilar to legislation that's been, since been passed in Hungary and even in the state of Florida. But this new law extends that to uh, promoting such information, quote unquote, promoting such information to adults. Um, you know, I think we can see this as a broader crackdown on civil rights, such as they are in Russia today. I think sometimes when we talk about LGBTQ rights in countries like Russia or like Hungary, it's treated as sort of a distraction and like, oh, he's just using this to distract from his real power grab or distract from how poorly the war is going. And I think it's really important that we actually think of it as part of the same conversation and part of the same story, right? Like how my minority rights and civil rights are not a distraction from illiberalism and authoritarianism and ill-advised foreign conquest. Um, it, 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 it's all part of the same package, which is how, you know, the consent of the governed and how you treat the people um, over whom you are ruling. Meanwhile, on Thursday, Chinese President Xi Jinping arrived in Saudi Arabia to meet with the king and crown prince Mohammed bin Salman. She also spent time with the Arab League and the Gulf Cooperation Council. Nancy, talk to me about this trip. What's significant about it and all the parties involved? Well, it's a very important trip because we have seen in the past few years that China has grown an influence um, in the Gulf. And here was the leader receiving a celebrated welcome to Saudi Arabia, much more um, much bigger than than President Biden got this summer. And they came out of it with a number of commercial agreements, some of them valued as high as $29 billion in areas of technology cooperation. And they also agreed to meet every two years. And so what we're seeing um, and have seen, and I think this was a very physical display of it, of is China trying to erode Washington's role in the region as a, as a power broker? Um, that you've heard the region say, we see the U.S. as disengaging from the Persian Gulf in this pivot towards Asia in its focus on Ukraine, and we see an opportunity to engage with your biggest military foe the pacing challenges you've described it, and we're going to take advantage of it. I think where we saw the limitations of that cooperation is we didn't see major changes on military cooperation um, between China and Saudi Arabia, that the United States continues to be the preeminent partner for the Saudis. And so what we're seeing is a more complicated relationship for the United States with Saudi Arabia, and one where the U.S. will have to contend with a Saudi Arabia that has very close ties, including um, technological ties, with its biggest, um, one of its biggest um, challenges going forward um, in China. Uh, we should note also all of this is unfolding as uh, sanctions are intensifying on Russia over the war in Ukraine. The global energy market has tightened and changed dramatically. How important, Nancy, how important is this visit um, in securing energy for China? Well, we saw the biggest crude um, oil exporter meeting with the biggest crude oil importer. And so the fact that they are solidifying that relationship and growing that relationship, I think, signals that both sides recognize this as an opportunity, that that partnership is an, is an opening for other forms of economic cooperation. 
And Katrina, we should note U.S.-Saudi relations are not in a great place right now. Right before the midterms, we talked about how Saudi Arabia was cutting oil production. There was, of course, the 2018 murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi that U.S. intelligence believed was ordered by the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. From the U.S. point of view, what's of most concern about these two nations getting closer? Well, I think there's a certain element of you know, the, the, the U.S. not making the new world order. It's, it's, it's being made slightly around the U.S. And the Biden administration has had to really balance what Biden said on the campaign trail about Saudi, calling it a pariah. Um, and at the time, it looking like Saudi would be on the back fit for years, a decade even after the, uh, the murder of Hashogji, the Biden administration being the ones who came out publishing that that um, declassified intelligence report you referred to. Um, but of course, when Ukraine happened, Biden then visited Saudi. He, he does a fist bump with Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince. Um, and the US in November backed immunity for, for, for the crown prince, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, over a court case about Hashogji after he was elevated to um, Prime Minister. So this balancing act is extremely painful for the Biden administration, given what Biden has said. And Saudi has shown it can uh, it can push back. I mean, China is calling this um, uh, um, a strategic relationship, a, a comprehensive strategic partnership. That's an elevation in what they're calling the relationship. They're going to hold summits every two years. So as Nancy says, there's, there's not that um, defense intelligence focus yet, but of course it could grow. And given Saudi's relationship on the U.S. on intelligence, but also U.S. relationship on uh, Saudi uh, cooperation on intelligence matters, it, it's going to be um, very complicated as things rejig in, in the next few years. And, and Biden has simply hasn't got what he wanted from, from Saudi Arabia. Well, I'll assume most of you were not in the stadium for the penalty decider between Spain and Morocco, though, man, would I have loved to be. But if you were, the second that saw Morocco through to the final eight sounded like this. The first World Cup held in an Arab nation has produced the Arab world's first quarter finalist. Morocco claimed their prize spot by beating Spain 3-0 in a penalty shootout. Nancy, you, you don't need to be a soccer fan to know this is a big deal. And praise for the team has come from all over the Arab world. What does Morocco's success mean for fans of the game throughout the Middle East? Well, I have to say I'm one of those who is delighted by it and has really celebrated the the surprises that the um, Arab and uh, Middle Eastern and North African nations have produced throughout the World Cup. From the beginning, when Saudi Arabia beat Argentina, when Tunisia beat France, and of course Morocco beat Belgium before this game. And it, it's one of the few times that we've seen sort of pan-Arabism across the Middle East and North Africa, something that has unified the region in such a positive way. And I think that's what you're seeing because the last time we had that opportunity, I would argue would be Arab Spring and the results of it were so um, painful for so many parts of the region. And here's some place where a sport that is ubiquitous to the region is being played on a sort of a home court from the perspective of the region. And so to see these surprises, to see the ability to celebrate unexpected wins by neighboring countries, I think it's something very unique um, to the region and a real opportunity for, for unity 
in a in such a positive way and in such a and in such a rare instance where we we see these kinds of opportunities. You know, Emily, there was a picture of the Moroccan team unfurling a Palestinian flag during their uh, celebrations on the field that went viral. But anyone with a, a rainbow flag will likely be escorted from the stadium. As this tournament wraps up in a few weeks, how many minds do you think have been changed about the decision to have Qatar host the World Cup in the first place? I mean, I, I, I have been watching and enjoying the World Cup, and I agree with everything that Nancy said, and I'll be rooting for Morocco as they take on Portugal. But uh, the reality remains that this World Cup, um, you know, came at the expense of thousands of, of largely South Asian migrant workers. Um, we know that, and, you know, even the word love with a rainbow flag was not permitted. Um, I think this, the quote-unquote sports washing has been somewhat successful if we look at the the praise coming in for Qatar from um, from countries around the world. Um, and I just hope that even, you know, I, I think it's probably coming across that I feel complicated about how much I've enjoyed this World Cup and the surprises and the stories um, because the reality remains that it, 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 it you know, it, we did not get here from not pursuing extremely problematic or for looking the other way on extremely problematic policies. Well, dare I ask, Nancy, since you seemed excited about it, do you have a favorite in the cup? Morocco, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, but honestly, you know, for me, it's just whatever happens, it's, I, I've already, I'm already satisfied with the experience of the World Cup because it's just, it's, it's, it's been for, for me a wonderful celebration of, um, of a sport that is so ubiquitous in the region. And I just love the surprises and I love the way that um, um, the fans have been able to celebrate. And I like that every time I tune in, it's a surprise and exciting. And so um, I, I'm rooting for Morocco, but I, I've enjoyed it and I will enjoy the experience however it ends because I think it's been, um, with all the talk of inflation and war and all this, something wonderful to celebrate. Um, and, and that's been my favorite part of it. That is a perfect note to end our conversation. Thank you so much to my guests, Nancy Youssef, National Security Correspondent at The Wall Street Journal, Emily Tamkin, Senior Editor U.S. at The New Statesman, and the author of the book Bad Jews, A History of American Jewish Politics and Identities, and Katrina Manson. She's a Bloomberg reporter looking at cyber and national security. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Paige Osborne is our managing producer. Maya Garg is our senior producer. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Aguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Amna Nawaz of the PBS NewsHour in for Jen White. Thanks for joining us. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A.